0: Our text this morning is Philippians chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. We'll be looking in addition to at a, a bit of an overview of this book as we begin the series. And so to give you a feel for where we are, I'm going to read the first 11 verses. you please give attention to the reading of God's holy, inerrant, sufficient, and authoritative word? Philippians chapter 1. You may have noticed in your bulletin that I have entitled this sermon, Blueprint for a Church. And if you had anything to do with the building project that we had here, or if you even had opportunity to glance through some of the plans, or perhaps you built your own home and you know what that's like, you open up and you look at the master plan, and it looks like someone has spilled dinner upon it. There are dots and symbols and lines and circles and triangles and squares, and you can't make heads or tails of any of it, or at least I can't. Maybe Daryl can or Steve. And oftentimes I think that is what it is like when we think about the church. There are so many pieces, there are so many parts, there are so many ministries, there are so many people, there are so many competing interests, and we wonder how do we figure out what a church is supposed to be? Well, if you dug a little deeper into those blueprints, after you peel back the first one in the roll that has all the spaghetti on it, you see the plan for just the electrical. You turn the page, just the plumbing turn the page, just the internet connections, and so on. And each one of those pieces makes sense because they're not distracted by other things. And then when you go back to the master plan, you begin to see not only the individual parts of the plan, but how they all overlay and they make a building that you need. You don't want a building with great plumbing and no electricity. Or with great electricity and no plumbing. You need to have a whole constructed building. That's what God's church is like. There are pieces and parts from all over that form the body of Christ. And it is absolutely no coincidence that we are beginning now the epistle to the Philippians which is perhaps the preeminent epistle in the New Testament as to what it means to be the church of the living God as we embark upon this next phase of our ministry here in this building. I would like us over successive months to learn what it means to be a church, to be a congregation, to encourage you in what you are doing well, to point you on to the love and obedience that's found in the Scripture to the Lord Jesus Christ. And so what I would like us to see this morning as we begin to look at Philippians together are the church, not is the church, are the church, because the church are the people in the church, not the building. And first we'll see people changed by Christ, people changed by Christ. And then we will see people used by Christ. People who are changed by Christ, who are then used by Christ, and who cannot help but be people who are caught up in Christ. Who love the Savior and love to serve Him. Well, let us look first then, if we could, at people who are changed by Christ. The first thing that we see is that these people are called saints. If we look here in verse 1, Paul writes together with Timothy, as servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi. Now, this was not a confidential memorandum. This was not something that was top secret or double top secret or or triple CIA secret. It was not handed out to every fourth or fifth church member who happened to be so holy and so good that they got to be a saint. As you may know, these epistles that were sent by Paul to the churches were read in the church, just as we read earlier from, from Timothy. They were read to the entire congregation, from the oldest to the youngest. Every single person, man, woman, and child, who is in Christ is a saint. These are actual people in an actual place at an actual time. Philippi was a Roman colony. It was called Rome in miniature. That meant that even though it was in Greece, they were Roman citizens, every single member of the community. It also meant that many of them were veterans who had settled in, in a place a little bit away from Rome and its bustle, but where they could have privileges. A third privilege that these people had that many of us, I dare say, would like to enjoy is that they were completely exempt from Roman taxation. These are people living in a town that is strong, that is vibrant, and that is very Roman. At the same time, it's also very Greek. It's a place where Greek civilization holds sway, and all that might come to your mind in thinking about that, Plato, Aristotle, Homer, the playwrights, Pythagoras. And yet at the same time, This Greek intellectual civilization was also known for its decadence, for its carelessness for the weak and for the infirm. This is where the saints at Philippi lived. What does it mean then to be a saint if everyone is a saint? What it means first and foremost is that it marks a status of the child of God. Being a saint means that you belong to a different order of things, entirely. You are a part of a different community, a different kingdom. It is completely and wholly other. Saint means holy one. And the reason that one is holy is not because you wear a white dress or a white suit or because you watch your mouth 24 hours a day. Or because you're very careful and scrupulous about the things that you do. No. The reason that one is a saint or is holy is because God makes one a saint. You see, things are holy because God makes them holy. God is wholly set apart. He is holy other. And He names things as holy. And when He calls His people to Himself, He names them as holy. They are things that are set apart. In the same way that perhaps. As you walked in this morning. You saw one of our new signs. That said sanctuary. It's a form of that word. It doesn't mean that this area is holier than some other area. Somehow more somber. Well in about. Eight hours. Seven hours. We'll be eating in here. Is that wrong? In a sanctuary? No. No. It is a sanctuary because it is set apart for the worship of God. It is not wholly because of what it is, but because of what God has claimed about it. And so as we think about that, we need to avoid the twin errors that come up as we think about being saints or being set apart. On the one hand, we want to avoid being overly scrupulous about separation. Oftentimes, it seems that what marks the Christian is to simply look out into the world and read the newspaper and try as hard as possible to do the opposite. The problem with that is that that changes from decade to decade and century to century and place to place. But Christianity, belief in the Lord Jesus Christ, living as a child of God is timeless. It doesn't depend on what your culture is or what the latest fads are that the world is involved with. On the other hand, though, we need to avoid the danger of accommodation. We don't say, well, we don't want to be overly scrupulous, so let's do everything like the world. Let's have divorce like the world. Let's live like the world. Let's treat our homes like the world. Let's treat our spouses like the world. No. We want to avoid being overly scrupulous, and we want to avoid being accommodating. Because you see, beloved, being a saint... Being set apart is not a reaction against something. I don't want to be like those people in that city. I don't want to be like those folks who act like that. No, being a saint is responding to being like God. It's not rejecting the world as much as it is being like God. And in that, we must reject the things that God rejects. But our emphasis is upon Being like God, seeking after His will, seeking to be like Him. Being a saint is indeed a status. It is something that is declared about us, but it is also a character. Because you see, what God claims about us, what God makes us by His declaration, is something that is very real. It puts an imprint on the character. When God calls you forgiven, you are forgiven. When God calls you His child, you are His child. When God calls you set apart, you are set apart. And it becomes a part of your character as a child of God. You all know this as well as I do, especially if you have children. Your children begin to act, talk, walk, even think like you. The interesting thing, though, is that you will find this phenomenon even in families where the children are adopted. They will take on the mannerisms of mom and dad. They will like many of the same foods. They will like many of the same sports. It is because there is a reality that is affected there. It is an imprint on our character. You see, being a saint is to be transformed by the Holy Spirit. And it is grace that makes people different not their behavior. And so, as a saint, we have God's character imprinted upon our lives. These people are not only saints, but they are also saints, Paul says, in Christ Jesus. What does that mean? It seems to be a bit of a paradox. Do we live lives, or do we live in Christ? Do we go out in the world, or do we cloister ourselves away lock ourselves up in a closet and seek to be as Jesus-like as possible? The answer is you must do both. Because, you see, Jesus wasn't Jesus in a closet or on an island. He was out and among the people, encouraging them, ministering to them, teaching them, bringing the Word of God to them. And this is what saints of the living God must do. They must continue to live life as Christians. You must, beloved, be salt and light. You must bring light to the world and you must resist decay. That is what salt does. It stops meat from going rotten. You must relate to people as people. Yet, you must do that unashamed of the fact that you claim the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, if you're thinking to yourself right now, That's awfully hard. You're right. I would dare say it's impossible outside of the grace and guidance of the Holy Spirit. But that is what the Lord calls His church to be. To be His ambassadors in the world. To work hard at the office. And yet at the same time, scrupulously keeping God's Word. Being a beacon there for the gospel. The question might come up to some of you. Well, if I'm going to be a saint and I'm going to be in Christ, how do I get united to Christ? How do I get in Christ? The answer is that salvation comes in Christ Himself. You see, all of this can be boiled down to two simple concepts. The first is, you are not as bad as you think you are, you are worse. You see, the bad news is you cannot go to God outside of Christ. You cannot live a life that is one of light and salt. You cannot love your neighbor. You cannot do these things apart from the Lord Jesus Christ. You are lost. You are hopeless. You are of all people most wretched. But the good news is is that in the Lord Jesus Christ, you are able, you can be alive, you can be useful, you can be beneficial. You do this by believing upon the Lord Jesus Christ, trusting in Him alone for salvation. These are saints, these are saints in Christ, and they are saints at Philippi. We need not forget this. You see, oftentimes, when we read a letter of Paul to a church, we forget about the real people that are there. And if it's especially a case like, for for example, Rome or Galatia, we don't know as much about those places as we would like to. But with Philippi, we have a very interesting phenomenon. We have Acts 16. I'd like you to turn there with me. For just a moment. And I want to introduce you to three people that know what it is like to live the difficult life of a saint. The first woman is a woman by the name of Lydia. You may know her as an entrepreneur. You may know her as the seller of purple. What you may not recall about Lydia was that she was very religious. She was familiar with the Old Testament, Acts 16 tells us. She was one who knew about God. She was, in verse 14, a worshiper of God. And she was also someone who was not given to, the phrase today is dead orthodoxy. She was one who was given to prayer, who gathered together with others, To pray to God. But even in the midst of this, even with her knowledge, even with her religious zeal, even with her desire for prayer, she was still a woman who had a closed heart. Do you see that? You notice that because her heart was opened by the the Lord. In verse 14, the Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. I don't know what that looked like in Lydia. But there was something in her life that had her holding back. Something that had her from taking that step. Something that had her frightened. And when Paul came, driven by the Holy Spirit, he came into her life and God broke down all the barriers and all the chains And she welled up with joy and life. She was a respectable woman, an honorable woman. And so she could then go out in the community and tell others about what the Lord had done for her. But she wasn't the only member of the Philippian congregation. There was another woman, or perhaps we might say a girl Because after Lydia was converted, in verse 16, we see a slave girl come by. A slave girl who is so socially unacceptable, she doesn't even have a name in the Bible. She is someone who has been dominated by wicked men for their profit. They are using her and her life and her pain for their own gain. Have you ever felt like that? Perhaps a boss who treated you like a hunk of meat just simply to make him money. Perhaps it was someone in your neighborhood who made fun of you, abused you, tried to make you run their errands, tried to make you do all the jobs that were not good or fun. Perhaps you felt abandoned. Perhaps you felt tired. Lonely. That would be the life of this poor slave girl. And she goes throughout the town saying that Paul and Silas are speaking of salvation to be found in the Lord. And Paul, and the phrase is very interesting here, he becomes annoyed with this manipulation. And he tells her, you will be free from this demon. He says to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of you. And at that very hour, the demon left this woman, this poor girl. But that's not the end of her story. You see, she's just like you and me. She's an ordinary person. And what happens is her, employ- her employers drop her like a bad habit. And she's left penniless, hopeless, family Except for the church of the living God. So much for Greek civilization to abandon this young girl. There's a third man who's a member of this congregation. We know him by the name, the Philippian jailer. So you can never forget that he's from Philippi. And he meets his difficulties in life with despair when he believes that all the prisoners are gone because of the earthquake and that his job is in jeopardy and that his life is in danger, he gives up. He wants to take his own life. How like that is our culture? Perhaps you, like me, shook your head at the story of the billionaire in Germany who killed himself in despair because he had lost a few hundred million dollars and left him with only a few more hundred million dollars in his bank account. Perhaps you have seen or heard or read in the news of those who have come down with an illness and rather than use their remaining days to minister to others, to be an encouragement, to do work that is left, they simply give up on life and walk around looking for someone to take their life from them. This is what the jailer is faced with. And when Paul and Silas tell him that they are still here, he asks the question that has gone down through the ages. Sirs, what must I do to be saved? Now, he's not asking, how do I get out of punishment from my boss? He's asking, sirs, what do I do? that if my life was as bad as yours, I would be found singing hymns to the glory of God at midnight. Sirs, what do I do? How can I be saved? How can I have this life? And the answer is so simple that it also rings down through the ages. You must believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. The question that comes to you is, Is that answer sufficient for you? Or do you wish Paul added a footnote or a paragraph or a sentence or two? Can you rest in the simple truth of the gospel that you must believe on the Lord Jesus Christ? And in that, you will be saved. These are three different people with different problems and different challenges. They are real people, real saints. We've seen now that there are people who are changed by Christ and now we see people who are used by Christ. People who are used by Christ beginning with our author, Paul. You may have noticed in that first sentence something a little bit different in this letter. It's not Paul, the apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ. If you have... Your Bibles, you can flip and see that in many of Paul's epistles, he begins, Paul the Apostle, to state his authority, to state his mission, to state what the Lord has called him to. But he doesn't do that. He doesn't use this ordinary designation. In fact, he does something so different, it's startling to us. He says, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus. Now, this word that is used in the New Testament can mean servant. But in our culture, we often think of servant as something like a butler in tails with white gloves who lives fine and comes and brings dinner and takes it away and is polite. When in reality, servant in this culture meant slave. That should also conjure up images in your mind. It meant bond servant. It meant you were wholly owned. You were property. You had no rights of your own. You had no will of your own. You did whatever the master said. Now, do you see how sharp that contrast is? Instead of claiming his rights, Paul exalts his humility. He puts the Lord forward first. He says, I am the servant of another. He's actually beginning something we're going to see over and over again that is a theme of Philippians, which is humility. He is a model servant. You see, because we often can be confused by the privileges that we have as the children of God. One commentator put it this way. He said, the great privileges of God are not like a robe and slippers that we can lounge around in. They are like armor and shoes that we can go out and work and fight in. That is why God has given us privileges. He has equipped us to do His service. And so this is the case with Paul. He says that he is a servant of Christ, and he greets all the saints, and he wishes them grace and peace. Paul is a man, we will see in this letter, who is joyous in his service. You know, when we think about Paul's joy, we often go back to that chapter 16 in Acts and that prison and we think, Paul's joy, he was singing hymns. But in reality, while Paul is writing this very letter, he is stuck in a Roman slammer. He is in jail right as he is writing over and over again, Rejoice! Have joy. Rejoice. Again, I say, rejoice. This is Paul in prison. He is a model of service to others. Look with me here at verse 12. This is what Paul finds important. He says, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to the advance of the gospel. Really, brethren, it's a really good thing that I'm unjustly imprisoned. It's for the furtherance of the gospel. Now, would you think of that if you were hit with an unjust tax penalty? You know, it's really wonderful that I had to pay that extra money because it it worked out to the advancement of the gospel or that you broke down in traffic. Well, you know, I broke down in traffic and I missed my flight and we lost that business, but it really happened to the advancement of the gospel. Because it taught me patience. And the man who came by, I was able to explain to him the reason why I had patience. And I had a Bible in my glove box. That's the life that Paul emulates for us. It's a life of service. It's a life in which Paul wants to be known for his service to the Lord Jesus Christ. Not for what he has done. There's not just Paul who is being used by the Lord Jesus Christ, though. There are also these overseers and deacons. I'm thankful for this in Philippians chapter 1 because it describes for us the fact that the church indeed is organized. You see, the church is not an organization. It is a living organism, but it is also organized. You see... These Philippians were not free They did not decide, well, you know, maybe let's think next week when we might have worship. Well, should we have somebody teach or should we just sing? Well, you know, should we gather together or should we decide at the last minute? Should we help that person or should we think about it for a while? You see, the church of the Lord Jesus Christ is organized. and organization requires leaders. And these leaders are not to press down, but these leaders are to press forward with the people of God. Because you notice that this letter is written to all the saints with the overseers and the deacons. You see, these overseers, that is elders, and deacons are alongside the people of God. They are not over the people of God. They are not apart from the people of God. They are alongside them. They are to work alongside the people of God. What does this mean? We might think about it even in this case here in Philippi. You see, they needed elders because they would have young converts. And they wanted to make sure that a new convert was not thrust into teaching the children in Sunday school. Because he or she might not have proper ideas about who Jesus is yet. They may not understand that He's God and man. They may not understand what it meant to say that He humbled Himself. Things that Paul deals with later. They wanted to be organized to make sure that the teaching was proper and biblical and encouraging. They were also the folks who planned missions. Because you see, we read all throughout Acts of Paul traveling and encouraging and strengthening the churches that we have never even heard Of a missionary planting. It's because these churches planted churches. They went out from where they were. They didn't keep the good news in. They went out to the outlying towns. And to the countrysides. And to the various cities. And you need people to organize that. So it's done effectively. And efficiently. And powerfully. And that was the job of these elders here. In Philippi. What about deacons? Did they have. Air conditioning in Philippi? Did they maintain the temperature in the sanctuary? Well, no. But they did many of the same things that our own deacons do. Because, you see, it was not very long into the Philippian congregation that they were faced with a poor girl who was penniless and had no skill. That's a deacon project to take this slave girl who has lost everything because of claiming the Lord Jesus Christ and to support her and to lift her up, perhaps even to find a family that would adopt her, as it were, to take her into their their home, to encourage her, to continue to teach her the Word. This is what the deacons would do. They would also take up a collection, we would know, and they would send relief to the saints at Jerusalem, or they would send a missionary check to Paul. But they didn't have checks. They would send a missionary wallet filled with coins to Paul so that he could be supported and go out and about through his work for the Lord. We know that from the Scriptures. These are people who not only have been changed by God, but they are being used by God. But it's not just Paul the Apostle. It's not just the elders and the deacons that are involved in this ministry. It's all the saints, because that's who this letter is written to. You see, this was the very first church founded in Europe, the very first. So in a very real sense, this is the great, great, great grandmother of this church, because this church at Philippi helped to found all of the other European churches that would follow And those European churches helped to found American churches. It is because of the work of ordinary people like you and me that the gospel has gone forward thousands of years and thousands of miles. Do you desire to have a great, great granddaughter of a church in Malaysia, or Sudan, or India, or Stockholm? Or St. Petersburg? Beloved, you will be used by God because you have been changed by God. We must get to work as the church, spreading the Lord's message in the Lord's manner with the Lord's means. You see, Paul writes to this church that is healthy. It is not like Galatia or Corinth. It's not bound up in difficulties. But he doesn't tell them to rest on their laurels. No, the exact opposite. He says you must progress forward. And the only way to progress forward is with love and service. It is the same thing that we have said about this building. This is not the end. We must progress forward in love and service. We have not arrived. How do I know this? Paul wrote this letter to this church that he had founded. Do you know how old this church was when they received this letter? They were between 11 and 12 years old. you all know how old this congregation is? This congregation is about 11 years old. A little bit less. You see, the Philippians were in a very similar spot to where we are. And we must think about our mission and our work and our taking of the Word of God in the same way that they did. We must think about the way the Word of God affects the people of God in difficult circumstances. Because you see, as Paul writes this letter 11 years later, and he writes, For to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. The jailer pounds, Amen! I was going to die. And to live is Christ. And when he writes this letter and he says to them, you know, you need to labor side by side with these women. Labor with these fellow workers. Be together in the Lord. There's a woman who sat by a river that's nodding her head and saying, yeah, that's what it was like. There weren't many of us then, 10 years ago. We really had to pitch together. And when he reads in the pulpit, in this congregation, finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. There's a not-so-little girl anymore smiling to herself, knowing that she's given up Filth and difficulty and shame and pain. She dwells upon what is good and pure because of what the gospel has done in her life. These are the people that are used by Christ. Do you desire to be one of these people? You can. The power is found in this book. The power is found in the Holy Spirit. You don't need to be a super special saint. You could be used by Christ if you've been changed by Christ. And those of us that know the Lord Jesus Christ by faith, that have been changed by Him forever, and that are put to work by Him as His servants, we cannot help but be caught up in Jesus. We cannot help but have our entire world be changed. You see, that's what happens here in the end of this greeting. Paul writes to them and he says, Grace to you and peace from God our Father. And he says to them, You must live by grace. You must live in the grace of God. That is the way in which life has meaning and joy and purpose. And divine grace leads to peace. You see, grace and peace go together together. Because it is by the grace of God that we can have peace with God. And having peace with God, it is how we can have peace with each other. You see, the people of Philippi could not see this. For all their Plato they could quote, or all their Homer that they knew, or all of the math and Pythagorean theorems that they could throw at you, when they were met... With the work of the gospel and seeing a little girl's life changed, they responded with hate and anger and attack. And they beat the men that had saved her. And they threw them into prison and forgot about them. But not so the church of the living God. You see, Paul is concerned that these Philippians live lives changed by grace. He's not concerned with who they are by nature. And you need to remember that that's no small feat. These are Roman citizens. These are veterans of wars. These are wealthy men who don't pay taxes in an organized city. And he Paul says, I don't care about any of that. What I care is who you are by grace. Who you are because of what God has made you. This is what it means to live by grace. And when we live by grace... We live for Christ. We are caught up in Christ and we live for Christ. And so only Christ is what we see. He is all in all to us. And you can see it even in a chain of Paul's sayings. If you look with me at chapter 3, verse 7. He says, but whatever gain I had, I counted it as loss for the sake of Christ. And that caused Paul to say what he said in First. Uh, In Philippians 1, verse 21. For to me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. I've left everything behind. I'm only looking for Jesus. My whole life is for Jesus. And then he encourages everyone else around him. He says, have this mind among yourselves. Have the mind that is the mind in Christ Jesus. Because you see, if we have the mind of Christ and we live for Christ, and we count everything else as secondary, we begin to see what Paul says in Philippians 2.11. That every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Paul is obsessed with Jesus in this epistle. Do you know that every third verse mentions Jesus? More than any other book in the New Testament. A third of the verses mention Jesus Christ. Paul is bound up, caught up, raptured up with joy in Jesus Christ. You see, Jesus is his joy. It is the joy of the Philippians. It's the joy of the congregation. And it should be your joy as well, beloved. You see, You may have heard cute analogies about the difference between happiness and joy. But I think the best way to encapsulate it is to think about the fact that happiness is bound by circumstances. Joy is not. Because joy does not have anything to do with circumstances. Joy has everything to do with Jesus Christ. That's why Paul can say in chapter 1, verse 18... What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. And in chapter 3, verse 1. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. And in verse 3, glory in Jesus Christ and put no confidence in the flesh. And in chapter 4, verse 4, rejoice in the Lord always. And in verse 10. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly. His joy is linked to the Lord Jesus Christ. And Paul has become a man who is so caught up in Jesus that the world has nothing either to offer or hurt him. Do you think about that? In the midst of recessions and divorces, at school closings, at bad news on the news. Paul is not affected by it, not because he somehow whisked up out of earth and put on Mars, but because he has focused solely upon the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, the world can't offer him wealth or fame or circumstances because he says, I'm content in whatever state I'm in. The world can't offer me wealth. I'm happy. I'm joyful. Either way, the world can't offer him morality. Because he says in chapter 3, verse 9, because I am found in him not having a righteousness of my own, which comes from the law, but because of that which comes through faith in Christ. The world can't offer him fame. Because you see, when preachers are going out there stealing his message Cribbing his notes and doing it to hurt him. He says, doesn't bother me at all. I'm happy as could be. Because Jesus is glorified. This is the one who lives for Christ. Being bound up in Jesus means one final thing. It means living in unity. Not only means living by grace. And living for Christ. But it means living in. In unity. One of the things that we will see over and over and over again as we go through this letter is the importance of community. Look with me, if you would, as we just scan through some verses that we will look at later. Chapter 1, verse 4. Paul says, always in every prayer of mine for you all. He spends time praying for all of them. And then in verse 7, he says, it's right for me to feel this way because you are in my heart. I think about you and I pray about you because I love you. And then look at verse 24 of the same chapter. He says, I would much rather be with Jesus. But for your sake, it's better to remain in the flesh. He's concerned about them. He's concerned about the community. And so in verse 1 of chapter 2, he says, if there's any encouragement, if there's any comfort, complete my joy by being together. Be of the same mind. That's what it means like to make me rejoice. To be unified and together. And that's why he reminds them about Timothy and Epaphroditus at the end of chapter 2. Because they were dear to them. They are united together. It's why in chapter 4, he encourages the two ladies, Euodia and Syntyche. He says, don't be at odds. Be together. Be united. It's more important to be a community of the living God. This is what it means to live in unity. And we're going to see that there is a chain here through Philippians. By having humility as a child of God, And by being founded upon the truth, there are some of the most doctrinal passages in the Bible here. The best passage describing how Jesus is both God and man. is here in Philippians 2. By being humble and by having truth, we can be united. And that leads to joy. So if you want more joy in your life, Christian, you must be humble. You must love the truth. And that must bring you together, not break you apart. And that will lead to joy. You see, if we think about these concepts, we cannot help but be excited. This book, Paul is overwhelmed with excitement for the Lord Jesus Christ, has more sound bites than any other book that I think we're aware of. They're what I call cross-stitch framed verses. You know those ones that you either do or you buy and you hang up. And as you walk by, you're encouraged. You know what I mean. It's verses that I can start and you can finish. Like, and I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Or like this, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Or like this, for it has been granted for your sake, Not only to believe in Him, but also to suffer for His sake. Or perhaps this one you recall. Have this mind among yourselves, which is in Christ Jesus. Or maybe this verse. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more so in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Or how about this one? Do all things without grumbling and complaining. Or maybe this one. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Or perhaps you're encouraged by, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. And then, of course, those wonderful verses that encourage us and give us peace. Do not be anxious about anything. How about the peace that is beyond all understanding? Where Paul says, I want you to know the unknowable peace. Is that incredible? Or what about this? Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. Or maybe your favorite would be the one that drives all of these. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. This is the letter of joy, of humility, and of love for the church. May the Lord bless us as we continue to go through. And may He equip us that we might be out in our community Sharing this joy, sharing this word of life with those around us. Let us pray.